Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast series from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Shuba Sunder about her story, A Very Full Day, which appeared in issue 22 of The Common. Shuba Sunder's debut story collection, Boomtown Girl, won the St. Lawrence Book Award and is forthcoming from Black Lawrence Press. She has published stories and essays in New Letters, The Common, Narrative Magazine, Michigan Quarterly Review, Catapult, Crazy Horse, and elsewhere. Her fiction has received honorable mention in the Best American Short Stories, won the Crazy Horse Fiction Prize and Narrative 30 Below, and been shortlisted for the Flannery O'Connor Award, the Hudson Prize, and the New American Fiction Prize. She is a recipient of the Massachusetts Cultural Council Fellowship and the City of Boston Artist Fellowship. She teaches creative writing at Grub Street and at Massachusetts College of Art and Design. Shuba Sunder, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Emily. Could you set the scene for our conversation? Tell us where you're living and calling from. I'm calling from Boston, where I live. Um, I'm in my Uh, house right now in a quiet corner and I can see that we still have snow on the ground from last week's storm and you know I've lived in the northeast now for over 20 years and being from the tropics I still find the winters kind of exotic Um, I love to complain about them but I do find them you know continually interesting Okay. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, this one has been hanging around still this winter. <laughs> I would love to start off with a reading from your story. Would you read just the first paragraph for us? Sure. So the title of the story is A Very Full Day. He was, locals agreed, the quintessential Kaverinaga retiree. In his wool silk trousers, navy blue sweater, and plaid scarf wrapped tight about the ears, C.K. Rajkopal, former Air India pilot, cut a lithe figure as he strode down 8th Main. On his feet, he wore the ergonomic shoes his son had brought him from America, designed for trekking or for Indian sidewalks, his son had said. The shoes had, for the past weeks, felt heavy, like stones tied to his ankles. But this morning, strangely, it was no longer so. 
Perhaps his leg muscles had needed time to adjust to their new load. Perhaps he was rejuvenated by the winter air. Whatever the reason, as he made his way to Wadayar Lake, past the provision, provision store and the barber shop, still shuddered at this early hour, past the temple and the sugarcane stall, Mr. Rajgopal experienced a lightness, as if the ground were falling away from him and he were floating, gliding, over the pavement stones and under the gulmohers, through clouds of golden dust churned by the municipal workers' brooms. Thank you for reading that. For our listeners who may not have read your story yet, would you describe what the piece is about? Sure. Um, it is a, a day in the life of this curmudgeonly old man um, who's a widower. And, you know, we see him go about his, his chores, his social engagements. And, uh, you know, throughout the, the day, he's trying to, you know, make a connection, uh, approach this woman, a fellow um, member of this senior center in the neighborhood of Bangalore where they live. And, you know, he can't quite bring himself to acknowledge that he, that he fancies her. I would love to hear how you came to write this story. Like what inspired you to start work on it or, or how it came together in the early days? Well, it's part of my collection, um, Boomtown Girl, which is uh, you know, comprises stories all set in Bangalore, my, my hometown. And, you know, I wrote this late in the, in the collection where when I um, was aware that I really didn't have a story with an elderly character and I wanted um, you know, the main characters and all the stories to represent um, a variety of ages. And I, as, you know, as for all the stories in the collection, I really wanted um, a sense of place in the story, a sense of Bangalore. Uh, and to be more specific, the, the Bangalore that, that I grew up in, the Bangalore of the, the nine, late 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Um, you know, which is very different from the Bangalore of today, um, because there's been a lot of development, a lot of you know sweeping change in the sweeping changes in the landscape, the culture of the city. And Mr. Rajgopal is very much inspired by um, both my own late grandfather, um, who you know had these these routines, very you know, set <laughs> routines, and you know very strong opinions and ideas about, you know, what was right and what he liked to do and what he refused, what he would refuse to try. And uh, so inspired both by him and, uh, you know, other members of uh, a senior center, which was uh, a place that sadly has only just closed. The pandemic ended up shutting it down for good. Um, but it was this, you know, very lively place where, um, you know, retirees in the in the neighborhood could uh, could gather, and you know there were there were activities throughout the day for them. My mother used to volunteer there. It was very much a a Bangalore institution. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that was that was the inspiration. Yeah, I remember when I first read this story uh, in the submission queue, it felt like such a great fit for the common because that setting is so specific, you know, this community of retirees, and they have these rituals and routines and, and sort of those small excitements of, of an astronomy talk or splurging on an ice cream. Um, can you talk a little bit more about putting that world together? I mean, it's just, it's so vivid and it feels so lived in. Um, 
Well, that part was was easy for me. I never gave it much thought. I mean, it's just uh, it's just what I remember very vividly, mm-hmm. and of course, you know, um, both what I remember and what I imagine, um, but based you know on my own experience and and what I've seen. Um, I think uh, you know there, it's it's impossible to write about uh, Bangalore without sort of engaging with its past as um, a small a small town you know kind of like backwater almost mm-hmm. uh, it was it was never you know a, a, a huge city like like delhi or or bombay or calcutta um it was you know this uh, a small a small city almost like a town um with a very temperate climate for south india and you know lots of lots of trees uh kind of you know peaceful a place where people, you know, retreated. Um, a place where a lot of people went to retire, actually. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's very hard to write about Bangalore without, you know, acknowledging that past um, and the present, which is, you know, now it's the Silicon Valley of South India and, you know, like Microsoft and other, you know, global tech companies um, uh, all have a very large presence there. And, you know, it's completely mm-hmm. changed both the... The, the physical the physical landscape and you know the the culture the the feeling of the place yeah i really like the 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 introduction of this sort of um western style ice cream shop that's very expensive and the ret- retirees are sort of like oh well we don't we don't go there you know right uh, it really sets up that dichotomy yeah yeah no that was very much part of my growing up in um in Bangalore, it was very exciting when the first uh, KFC came to, to the city. You know, that happened when I was in <laughs> high school. Um, yes, so you know, very expensive. I mean, I mean, really only accessible to um, a very, um, you know, small section of, of society, but still significant. Yeah, that is a very big transformation in, in not a lot of time, yeah. I had so many different reactions to this main character throughout the course of the story. You called him a curmudgeon. He, he's very rigid and proud, and he's like, you know, maybe a little bit unlikable sometimes. And sometimes I wanted to laugh at him, and then other times I felt sorry for him. And I was also s- still always rooting for him to succeed at these small things that that matter so much to him. You know, the stakes for him just feel so high. Um I mean, you said he was like vaguely built off your grandfather. I wonder if you could just say more about like creating that character. And also, I mean, you know, I, I know that no one likes to talk about creating unlikable characters because, you know, everyone's unlikable in some way or another, but I just wonder, you know, did you work on that balance a lot or, or think a lot about how people would react to this character? Yeah. I mean, I don't see him as, as unlikable at all. I mean, I, I see him as, as interesting and as someone who, um, you know, has uh, has a very like set exterior that he likes to present to the world. Um, and that he believes in himself, you know, and, but of course he has these, um, these hidden in these, these insecurities, these desires deep down that, you know, contradict the image of himself that, um, he presents to the world and also, um, his own self-image. Um, and I think that was one of the, the lines of, of tension that I, that I found, um, you know, as I as I kept writing the the story and him, that you know, in every scene, there's this contradiction between you know what he thinks is going on, and what's going on internally. 
And, you know, I just, I, I just tried to lean into that as much as I could, you know, so the, the reader knows more about him than, than he does. And as soon as I, and as soon as I, you know, realized that that was, that was possible with this character, um, it became, you know, very, I wouldn't say easy, but certainly very interesting to, you know, keep exploring him and putting him in these different situations. Like he goes, um, uh, on a walk with his friend and we can see, you know, the, the contrast between what he tells his, his friend about himself and what he believes, um, and, you know, the, the inner reality of what he really feels. And then he, you know, has, um, coffee with this woman that he's interested in and, um, you know, I think we, the reader, can like sense that uh, he he wants to you know get closer to her, but doesn't really know how. Um, and you know, then he goes to a tailor shop to pick up some trousers that he had given them for alteration, and he has a little like explosion in there <laughs> that I think is uh, you know both very much very much like him. He does have a, a short temper, um, but it's it's comic. You know, I, th- I think as soon as I realized that he was, uh, you know, um, slightly funny, um, that 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 kind of rounded him out. You know, he wasn't just tetchy and, um, you know, short-tempered and, and rigid, but um, he was also funny. And I think, um, you know, when you're writing unlikable characters, it, uh, it it helps to have them be a little funny. <laughs> Yeah, I also felt like, you know, the moments like you described when he has the explosion at the tailor shop or, or, you know, when he sort of, you know, becomes cold to certain people, you can kind of feel that it comes from this like discomfort or, you know, an insecurity, like you said. And so, you know, it's very easy to sympathize with it, even though you're like, this isn't great behavior. (laughs) Right, right. I mean, he's harmless. Um, Yes, absolutely. But he, yeah, he he certainly has his moments, Mm -hmm. I guess, as we all do. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I just really felt like uh, because he lives this life that is in these rituals and these routines and stuff, the stakes for like a small interaction feel very high for him because, you know, he's not flying jets anymore. You know, he's not doing these big important things. And so these are the big important things now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's also, I think, like one of the things he's, uh, you know, coming to grips with is I guess, uh, you know, everybody does when they when they're in that stage of life is... Um, his relevance in the world. Um, and, you know, so he clings to the, he both, he both clings to, you know, the, the, you know, the achievements, the, uh, the moments in his life that, you know, feel significant to him and feel, you know, he feels that others need to respect um, as well as, you know, moments where he has his own uh, moments where he just feels incredible self-doubt about whether he really has done anything or, um, you know, lived up to, to his own ideals. Yeah. I'm always interested in, in a writer's revision process because I find revision so hard. <laughs> Would you tell us about revising this piece, like how it's changed from the first draft? Sure. Um, I love revision. Um, for me, the first draft is what's painful. Um, you know, yeah, just transforming the blank page into, you know, sentences and paragraphs. Uh, but once something is down there, then, um, you know, that's the, that's the material that, that can be, that can be worked with. Um, 
Yeah, this uh, this went through a lot of um, through through many many drafts, and I, I remember early on the first line of the story. I mean, most of my my work tends to begin at the beginning. You know, I don't uh, usually write a scene in the middle that uh, um, you know, and then and then later write the beginning. Um, so the first line of this sort of went went something like, on the morning of the day he died, C.K. Rajgopal, da-da-da-da-da. And I, 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 it, it took me a few drafts to realize that that was just um, not going to work. You know, first of all, that's the sort of line that suggests a novel and not a short story. Um, and also it just felt, you know, so heavy-handed. And I think part of how I came to that realization was... Um, you know, getting to the end, I realized, you know, no, it doesn't make sense for this character to die. It's much more um, reasonable and um, moving. I think if he, if this is just a day in his life, you know, every, we, we know he's old. Um, so the end is not, you know, far off. Um, and, you know, he certainly entertains the possibility or the, the you know, the reality of his own, um, of his own demise at, more at more places than one throughout the story and so once I got rid of that uh, opening it just gave the story this lightness that I was able to to lean into the the comedic element as well um so that was uh that was you know it may sound like a small change you know changing the opening line but it really made me see the the story in a whole different way um and then after it had been accepted at the common um, I went through a few rounds of revision with Jen Acker, and um, she, her her feedback really helped me kind of um, fine tune his his character. You know, making again making small but significant changes um, that portrayed his character. You know, the way the the, the way I wanted him to to come across. Um, so it just meant you know sort of. Um, toning down his outbursts in places, you know, adding um, some moments of reflection here and there. Um, you know, the, again, leaning into what was what was already there, which was you know this um, constant contradiction between um, how he presents himself to the world and the way he thinks of himself, and you know the reality within. Um, and so, yeah, it was a matter of recognizing when that contradiction wasn't um, completely realized and, you know, putting it in there. Right. Do you have any revision advice or tricks and strategies that you, that you often turn to when you're revising stories? Well, I mean, every story is so different. <laughs> you know, I think uh, every, uh, every story is, you know, its own universe and the only rules that apply are the, the rules that are created by the story. So, um, yeah, I, 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 you know, I've revised different pieces in different ways, depending on what they need. Um, so I, I, I would say, I, I don't know if I have like a single, um, kind of revision process other than, you know, the standard work on something, put it away and work on something else. Um, and then, you know, take the old thing out of the drawer and look at it again. Um, Lately, what I've been doing is, um, you know, as soon as I have something that, you know, I'm not too embarrassed to read aloud, I, I read aloud to my partner, who's also a writer and an editor. 
and it's it's really like it saves me a lot of time because you know reading something aloud um first of all even if you know no one is uh, listening i think just hearing your own work um uh, and being conscious of an audience makes you alert to you know all kinds of problems that um, perhaps you know would have gone unacknowledged just reading silently. And um, but of course, I also have the the good fortune to to read to someone who is a writer and an and an editor. Um, and you know he tells me things that I can you know note down um, right then and there. And even if I don't revise the piece immediately um i know that uh you know what he's saying is you know, makes total sense for the story mm-hmm. um yeah that's a great asset to have <laughs> yes and so I, and he helps me get there faster than perhaps i would get there by myself yeah yeah i, I know um uh jennifer acker is a big proponent of, of reading your work aloud once you feel like it's in like a good space and it really can show you things you didn't realize about the piece i i read a few of your other stories online. And I really enjoy them. I especially love the footbridge, which is in Michigan quarterly review. Um, and it just had me wondering, like, do you usually find yourself writing stories set in India? Like, is that sort of common territory for you? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Um, well, uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm in this uh, stage in my writing where I am really now focusing on, um, writing fiction set in America, which, you know, was not the case until, um, until the start of the pandemic, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, 2021 um, was, uh, I'm sorry, 2020 was when I, you know, I, I've been thinking about writing this novel set in the US for a while, and I didn't, uh, you know, start doing it until 2020. And it, I think, really represents a shift in my, um, in my fiction. But uh, the short story collection, Boomtown Girl, you know, of which... Um, the footbridge and the very full day are apart. Those stories are all set in Bangalore. It's the thing that holds the collection together. And um, I mean, I was really writing from a place of, you know, nostalgia almost. You know, I I, I wanted to capture Bangalore not so much because you know I wasn't there anymore. Um, because I found that I, I'm, I'm not really homesick. I've never been homesick for India or for Bangalore when I'm here in the U.S. Um, I'm just, you know, it's, it's strange. I know that, you know, a lot of other, uh, m- most immigrants would, you know, describe um, feelings of nostalgia when, when they're away from their home country. But for me, that's never been the case. When I'm most nostalgic is when I'm back there because it's so transformed. Um, you know, the place that I left is now, you know, unrecognizable. Um, so I wrote from a place of, you know, that sort of feeling. Um, and the, the collection really, you know, sort of, you know, came together, um, in the, in the final stages of, you know, revision when I was revising the book as a whole. And, um, I think it acquired a new sense of meaning for me because I, I, um, I have a three-year-old son now who is, you know, growing up in America. He's going to be um, American, at least for the, you know, <laughs> foreseeable future. Um, and, uh, you know, I was able to see the collection as, you know, something for him. Um, you know, this is the, this is going to be his, um, uh, his way of knowing something about his motherland. Um, 
but it does also feel for me, uh, you know, like the end of a certain stage of my writing. I don't want to write about Bangalore in this way anymore. Um, and so, yes, my the, the novel that I'm working on now is uh, very much set in um, in America, in in Boston, to be more specific. Uh, I love the idea of the story collection as something for your son. That's really nice. Um, and, uh, you know, as I said, when I was reading your bio, uh, the collection is coming out soon. It won the 2021 St. Lawrence book award, which is amazing. Um, I am so curious about how a story collection comes together. Um, you know, just to hear you say earlier that you wanted, you realized you hadn't written anyone who was elderly and you wanted to do that. Like how do you, when, what's the process of putting a book together and how do you see what's missing or see what you're doing too much, you know, is that a point where you have to be like, these stories are too similar, you know? Mm. Um, well, I mean, starting out, I, you know, I couldn't think of writing anything set in America. I had made a few attempts and they were just, uh, you know, they just didn't work. Um, but the writing that was set in Bangalore just felt, you know, just more successful, um, so that's when I think I had about, you know, two or three stories that I really liked, um, at, at that point. And so I was able to say, okay, well, what's the thing that holds these stories together? They're, they're all set in Bangalore. Okay. So I can write a few more and then I'll have, uh, um, a book. And they, they, I mean, there was enough, there were enough ideas, um, that felt different enough, you know, from each other, um, that I didn't, uh, I, I wasn't faced with that with that problem of you know having um, things feel too similar. There are three stories um, in the collection that, strangely, and this was not an intentional at all. It just ended up being this way. That feature um, uh, a white American woman and an Indian man. And you know, at first I you know was thinking, oh, these are not representative of the collection at all. Um, but once I had you know um, finished putting it all together, I realized, oh, that these three actually make an interesting trio, you know, within the larger book. Um, and uh, you know, I did have uh, I, I do have quite a few you know young characters, um, children, and you know young adults. And, uh, and part of it, part of that is just, you know, it, it feels, um, um, you know, it's, it's easier for me to, uh, write about, um, the experience of, you know, adolescence growing up in Bangalore, because that was when that was an experience that I myself had. Um, and yeah, generational clash, I think, is, uh, you know, one of the themes that, again, um, you know, it's hard to write about Bangalore without um, having that come up. Um, clash between, you know, haves and have-nots, you know, people who have money and, and those who don't. And, uh, and of course, between East and West. In my reading, I, I also encountered a, a really wonderful essay that you published last year in Catapult, um, sort of about navigating divorce and learning to co-parent and, and all of this sort of during the pandemic. Uh, and, and the essay is sort of set during that time when we were first hearing about the vaccine and hoping it would solve everything very quickly. <laughs> all that time. I, I'm just curious, you know, you've, you've also written elsewhere about the pandemic too. So I'm curious what it feels like to write about something like the pandemic where what's current and how we're feeling changes so 
quickly. Um, I just sort of feel like I would have the urge to update it somehow, but of course it, you know, it doesn't need to be updated. Well, I mean, it wouldn't make sense to update it just because, I mean, it's very much a, a snapshot of, you know, that moment. Um, and I mean, it wasn't just a snapshot of that moment in the pandemic. It was a snapshot of uh, that moment in my son's development, um, you know, where you know, he, the, the acquisition of language is just something that's so exciting to watch in a child. Um, so, I mean, that's where my, my focus really was. And, uh, you know, it's just been so fascinating to see how, you know, this thing that's so awful and strange to us is not any more strange to a child than everything else they encounter, you know? Um, so, you know, yeah, he, um, he do- doesn't object to wearing a mask um, any more than, you know, for him, it's like putting on a jacket. <laughs> um, and, you know, just uh, following his way of understanding the world around him and the world within him, you know, through language um, and, you know, the way other kids use language as well, because um, they all, you know, they have different, different ideas and they're so, like, creativity is, comes so easily to them. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so it was, it was really more about, um, about capturing that, that snapshot, you know, so I would never update it just because it's very much, you know, it's like preserved in amber, if you will. Um, and, uh, the pandemic for me was actually a really um, creative, uh, creative period. Um, I, it was a time of my life where, you know, all kinds of difficult transitions were happening, and I really needed the world to stop. And how many times, you know, do you want the world to stop, and then it actually does stop? <laughs> um, so yes, if that if that could if that could have happened without all the suffering and depth, it would have been ideal. But um, it was uh, it was it was actually a you know very, the 2020-2021 um, were both very um, productive periods for me in terms of my writing. Yeah, that's nice to hear. I have sort of been feeling the same, and then feeling bad about it because I, yeah, I did just need things to quiet down for a little while, and I needed time to, yeah, turn inward and that kind of thing for, for writing and stuff. And, um, yeah, I wish those didn't have to be the circumstances, but it was productive. Yeah. So you teach creative writing to, to undergrads at, at Mass College of Art and Design. Um, and you also teach at Grub Street. I'm sort of curious, what do you get excited about in your students' work? I wonder, like, is there a generation doing things that, that excite you when you read them? Um, well, I mean, the thing that I always find interesting about teaching is, um, you know, I on the first day I you know meet my students and I kind of make assumptions about them, and most of the time those assumptions turn out to be wrong. Um, you know, teaching always has that opportunity to to surprise, um, which is what keeps it interesting. And um, the I'm teaching at Mass College of Art and Design right now. Um, I've never taught students who are primarily visual artists and. That bit is um, is fascinating. I mean, they approach narrative in a whole uh, a whole different way from you know what I'm used to. They don't approach stories necessarily through you know the lens of texts, but rather you know um, imagery and color and sound. Um, and so they're they're wonderful storytellers. And 
I would say in terms of, you know, a generational thing, I see a lot of um, fantasy and, uh, you know, works that are kind of serial in nature. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, that does make sense to me, uh, just, you know, given the, the, the things that, uh, that, that, we, that we're exposed to, and, you know, both in terms of, you know, books and movies and, I mean, we live in the golden era of television, I think. So the idea of these like long um, narratives that never quite have to be finished and that have, uh, you know, the potential for all these spin-offs um, is, you know, very much a part of their ethos. Yeah. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, how that like the, yeah, the television landscape is so completely different than it was when I was growing up and how that would change your idea of what makes a narrative or what makes a, a complete story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and, uh, uh, you know, alternative realities, fantasies, um, that really seems to be the, the, the stuff that, that gets them excited, which, um, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I enjoy sci-fi and, and fantasy too, but my, my writing so far at least has always been, you know, very rooted in kind of realist tradition. Um, I like to make, uh, or, or the, the, the thing that I find exciting is making the real slightly, you know, warped and, um, and in ways that are, that are surprising, but I've never, you know, taken a full dive into, into science fiction or fantasy. And for my students, that seems to be the, the easiest thing to do. Yeah, it does feel it's like a sort of a natural mode for them. I think it's very interesting. My only experience is just, um, you know, the common has undergrad interns. And so mm-hmm. I, I always notice what, you know, what they're reading and what they're enjoying. And it's it's definitely, you know, like you say, it's more more fantasy, more sci-fi, yeah, less realism. Yeah, and a lot of my students, uh, you know, are majors in fields like animation, say. So, um, yeah, they're certainly motivated by, you know, very, very strong, detailed, rich um visual characters and settings. So you mentioned your novel. Always the last question we always ask everyone is just like what you're working on now. So is it the novel? Or are you working on other things? Uh, the novel, yes. Uh, so yeah. it's, um, it's an unusual uh, kind of novel. Um, it's, um, it's told through um, a series of conversations that the main character has with, uh, you know, various people that she encounters over the course of this mm-hmm. year. Um, and, you know, I've never, I've always, you know, sort of hewed quite closely to a traditional form. Um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to writing, I think all my the, all the stories in this collection are you know fairly traditional in terms of their structure. I you know haven't really pushed any boundaries um, as far as the form of the short story, um, and I've never seen myself as a particularly experimental kind of writer. But this novel sort of um, you know came out in this unusual form, <laughs> um, and yeah, it's been it's been interesting and exciting to see something evolve that, you know, I wouldn't have um, thought I would, I wouldn't have thought I would gravitate towards this way of writing the novel, but it made, it it did make sense once, once I had really gotten into it. Yeah. That sounds like such a cool form. 
Um, is this the first time you've written a novel? No, it's my second novel. So my first novel um, was actually uh, turned into a short story. Um, oh, okay. It's now part of a collection. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would not uh, advise this as a way of writing a short story. <laughs> it took me you know, four <laughs> years to write the novel. Um, and, uh, you know, then when it wasn't working as a novel, I turned it, I turned it into a short story, which must have taken, you know, several months at least. Um, and I hope that I never have to do that again, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's my second novel. And, uh, uh, I think, you know, it, it's, I used to think of myself as this very slow writer. I just always assumed that, you know, the average writer took, um, an hour to write a sentence that would take me 10 hours. Um, and, um, but these days I can write, I'm, I'm writing very fast, um, which, you know, I, I, I don't know what it means. It might mean that I, you know, was always writing stuff that was difficult for me I, because I was not writing the stuff that, um, you know, that would have been easy. I just didn't know where to look. Um, but yes, it is. Uh, it's it's very refreshing to be able to um, to be able to write fast, um, and then you know soon after to be able to see what's what's working and what's not working, and and make those changes. Yeah, I was like, I just think writing a novel is it, you can just sink into it, and every day when you return to it, it, you're still you're doing the same thing. You don't have to you know reinvent the wheel every time. I find that very comforting after, yeah, after writing short stories, which are very difficult for me. <laughs> they are difficult, yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, I, guess, I mean, the novel can, you know, just become become a world. So that that's so easy to to enter once once it's established, and easy to stay in. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that about it. <laughs> Shubha Sunder, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really great to talk with you. Thank you for having me. Listeners, you can read Shuba's story, A Very Full Day, and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org. <laughs>